What's going on? It's your boy Tyrell Deshaun, the R&B sensation from Pure Brands ENT. And you are now rocking with Miss Robin Lynn on Vibes Live Radio. Keep the vibes live, you dig? Hello, I'm Robin Lynn Maven, the CEO, creator, and producer of Vibes Live. We have over 2 million geographical listeners reaching 200 countries with nonstop music 24-7. Just tune in on VibesLive.com. <laughs> which is now worldwide. We're stopping along the way and speaking with icons, pioneers, and legends of the industry about this worldwide culture and their place in it and the market they've made. We've got one man on us on uh, our um, show today. Uh, he's an OG, okay, uh, out of New York City. And if you ever wondered about who some of the first B-boys or B-Girls were, and where the term came from, well, this is probably one of the few living authorities on that subject. His name is Anthony G. Horn. He's known and beloved by the name of Charlie Rock, however, in hip-hop, and uh, he's well-respected as an academic as well as a hip-hop uh, trailblazer. Uh, he's going to go into his life, and when he talks about his life, He'll be giving you a slice of early East Coast hip-hop from way back in the day. I mean, from when everybody, when a baby must crawl before they take even baby steps. Well, he's going to take you back to when, before hip-hop had a name, it was crawling. It was a movement, however, and he's going to illuminate that side. But Mr. Anthony G. Horn on Disco Daddy's Wide World of Hip-Hop. What's up, Charlie Rock? What's good, my brother, Disco Daddy? A legend in your own right, my man. A legend in your uh, own you. right, absolutely. What's happening? You're very kind, my brother, but uh, I, 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 all heads must bow when they talk to someone like you who was there in the beginning. And um, that's why you're on the show today. Uh, everybody right, out right. here, if you want to know what it was like in the very early days, this is one of the few remaining members, because as you know, people are starting to leave us for that period of the first B-Boys to dance on the planet Earth. Mr. Charlie Rock is one of them. And you can name a few names that came before him, but they'll, you can count them on one hand. 
<laughs> so this is how far back this brother goes. This is how far back this brother goes. You know, he bows down to a couple of people, but at the same time, he was there to even see them. You see what I'm saying? And to, uh, uh, to interact and let you know what it was like during that early period of hip-hop. Mr. Charlie Rock, we're going to yes, talk sir. about hip-hop. But for now, just introduce yourself and your early history from out of New York City, the, the South Bronx, I assume. Am I correct? Well, actually, no, the North Bronx, the North Bronx. I was in the, the part that they considered the good part of the Bronx, actually. It's a very interesting you dichotomy. You know, and Tell as you said, my name is Anthony... My name is Anthony Gerard Horn. That's my legal government name, as they say. Uh, my father, my, my adoptive parents, I was adopted on May 24, 1960, and uh, to a mother who was a teenage mother. I never got to meet her or anything because she decided that in order for me to have a good life, she wanted to give me up for adoption. Obviously, being teenage, teenage pregnancy was very different from what it is today back right. in the 50s and 60s. It had a very different social stigma on it. And uh, being a teenage mother, I believe she was pregnant with me at either 14 or 15 years of age, somewhere of that nature. And she mm. decided that she wanted me to have a better life, and she decided to give me up for adoption, and I was adopted by Edna and Hayward Horn at five days old, and those are the only parents I've ever known. And my wow. father, my adoptive father, for whatever his reasons were, I have no idea why, but I mm-hmm. guess he wanted to give me his own name for himself, right. and right. he gave me the name Charlie, which is spelled C-H-O-L-L-Y, okay? So you'll see it in some yeah. places spelled the conventional way, C-H-A-R-L-I-E, but right. I'm telling you, I spell, I've always grown up spelling it C-H-O-L-L-Y, and that's the way my father spelled it. So it's Charlie, not Charlie. So, but the that's anyway. So I've had, know and love. Yes, yeah, 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 so... <laughs> <laughs> That's a name I've always had. So the name Charlie was not a name I got through dancing mm-hmm. or gangs or anything. The rock part is oh, the Charlie okay. part is from my parents and everyone in my family, cousins, grandparents, aunts, uncle, everybody, you know, now deceased and still living, knows me as Charlie. No one in my family calls me Anthony or Tony. All right? Gotcha. So that's how that one goes. And, um, okay. you know, I, I, I'm born and raised and grew up in the northeast section of the Bronx in the Gun Hill Road, the, what's known as the Williams Bridge or Wakefield area of the Bronx. And okay. to really be able to understand the significance and the dichotomy of that, all right, because, I mean, you know, most people who are not from New York associate the Bronx with the stereotypical definition of it. So the Bronx that they are familiar with or have heard about is the South Bronx. And that's right. the Bronx in the 1970s was burning and abandoned. They were the victims of... Um, redlining and early blight, um, wow. people like Robert Moses who built the Cross Bronx Expressway and the Brother right. Expressway and in the process destroyed communities, um, white flight. You know, the Northeast Bronx at that time was predominantly white neighborhoods, and as more wow. and more blacks started moving in, particularly blacks who were more middle-class blacks, actually. Right. You know, right. not even too many low-income. Right. It was more middle-class blacks. All right, working income, working class, and middle class blacks in the area, you know, but the more moved in, the more whites uh, practiced white flights, okay? What, so, year, what, years, what, what years is this going on right here? Well, I would about? say a lot of the white flights started in the 1950s, late 1950s, uh-huh. when they started building towns like Levittown, Long Island, and, right. you know, the white star, and that was built very specifically for the white middle class, gotcha. you know? 
when they, Robert Moses yeah. was designing the highways and everything, what I would suggest people read is a book called The Power Broker, which is the story of Robert Moses. <laughs> and I don't want to get deeply into that because that, that would take a few hours in and of itself. <laughs> Robert Moses had an obsession with the automobile that had a lot of racist agendas, and basically he designed and built the New York highway system. And he designed wow. and built it in, in, in an attention to be able to lead whites who wanted to practice white flight out of the cities and to the suburbs. Wow. All right? So he was very yeah. instrumental in creating the suburbs. Read it. It's, it's all very much documented stuff. But in any wow. event, mm-hmm. this, all of these things contributed to the decay and decline of the South Bronx initially. I got you. Now. I because see the as a lot of those whites who could not afford to get out to the suburbs or to Westchester County or felt they were safe, they moved up to the North Bronx, which huh. is Pelham Parkway, Gun Hill Road area, Throgs Neck, uh, some places that still exist that are still strongly and predominantly white and right. actually some of the most affluent communities in the country, Riverdale, okay. Pelham okay. Manor, Pelham, Pelham, Pelham Parkway, uh, right. the Throgs Neck area, Pelham Manor area, okay, mm-hmm. Pelham Estates. Okay, okay, those kind of places that are part of the Bronx, part of okay. the Bronx, but you don't right. hear about that, all right? Okay. The narrative that you hear is the, is the South Bronx, and the buildings mm-hmm. were burning, and all those things, and that's factual. That's absolutely true. And okay. so as those things were going on, the gang culture really took hold around the late 60s and early 70s, and that's where... Gangs like the Imperial Bachelors, the Savage Skulls, Savage Nomads, and for us African Americans, the Black Spades. And you know about yeah. them. The Black Spades, right. which started with seven people around 1967, 1968. From those seven people who called themselves the Savage Seven in Bronxdale Projects, Bronxdale Houses in the Bronx, and which was actually more towards, it's like on the division line of the North and South Bronx. And sure. they went from seven people to at its peak, about 10,000 members strong um, in its disbandment, yes, and became at its time the largest African-American street gang in the city of New York with divisions in all five boroughs and parts of Westchester County and Long Island. So a lot of those things happened. The reason I'm telling you that piece of it is because out of that energy, the music scene that would become known as hip-hop emerged. Right. <laughs> All yeah. right. Two scenes emerged, actually. One scene was the Latin hustle culture as well. You had the Puerto Rican cat uh, right. doing the Latin hustle and everything like that. And that's my man, right. Willie Estrada. You've heard me talk about Willie, and you've spoken to him a couple of times. I he was wasn't a black spade. He was a member of no. another... Uh, he was the Supreme Warlord of the Imperial Bachelors. The Imperial Bachelors. And they, they were allies with the Spades, were they not? Yes, they were. Yes, they were. It's funny. Okay. Myself, we, we were doing a presentation earlier today with my summer youth group downtown mm-hmm. at uh, my job where I'm a supervisor at, over for Bronx Works in uh, Bronx, okay. New York. But that's another okay. story. Talk about that another time. Right, right. But, gotcha. and then we might get into it at the end of the show, though, Charlie. We want to know what Absolutely. you're doing now. No problem. I'll be happy in to In fact, we will get into that. But, but go ahead, William Strider and the allies that you guys had. Right, in fact, right. And so one of the ways they brought peace to the Bronx, aside from the whole Avenue Peace Treaty meeting, they started throwing mm-hmm. parties and doing a dance called the Latin Hustle. And as you probably know, <clears throat> the Latin hustle crossed over, got picked up by whites, and it really started 
the disco craze, the Saturday Night Fever okay. and all those kind of things. And so on a right. national level, that's what took prominence. And there were blacks, okay. of course, who have gravitated toward a lot of that, too. And so what years are we talking now, Charlie? What years are we talking now, Charlie? We're talking now the early to mid 1970s. Okay, All right. early, 19, early being what? 72, 73, 73 or what? 74, up okay. until about 78, 79 in that era. All right? Okay. But that was, right. and that was what the older black people, black adults, and, and when I say older, I'm talking about 20, 21, you know, older right. compared to right. us who were 14, right. 15 years old. All right. Okay. Okay. They gravitate as they started coming out of the gang culture, you know, as that started fading out, they're getting, you know, they, they some are getting jobs. Those who were killed or in jail, they were right. having babies and they were starting to put their families and you know, right. they got older right. and you know, they got going into the club scene and the black club scene and everything like that. And that's when you had DJs in the late sixties, early seventies out in Brooklyn like Grandmaster Flowers, Maboya, DJ Plummer. Uh, DJ after Sydney be the Grand Wizard of Sound, people like that, who were very right. heavily into the black, what we call black club scene, you know, the black disco scene, which is very mm-hmm. different from the Saturday Night Fever kind of thing. Oh, right? I know, I know. I was a black disco DJ. Right, <laughs> right. So it's a different yeah, I, scene. I remember, you know, at that yeah, time, right, West Coast right. and East Coast, there was no real difference in the disco scene or black disco DJ, except, you know, basically there was no scratcher. Everybody right. mixed back then. You mixed on the beat and all that kind of stuff. You see what I'm saying? Exactly. You know, so I'm familiar exactly. with that. But go ahead, Chuck. Exactly. But during mm-hmm. the course of all of this, right, in the gang culture, mm-hmm. you had cats going to clubs like the Tunnel and the Puzzle in the Bronx and the Black mm-hmm. Spade and other gangs, and they're doing dances called, like, the Spade Dance. And the Spade mm-hmm. Dance is a dance you have to understand when we were gangbanging, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Spade, everybody, we wore what were known as MCs or engineer boots. Right, mm. or combat boots, engineer boots. Combat and, of course, okay. they're very hard bottom. When you stomp, they make a loud sound. It's very intimidating. And oh, so cool. the spade dance was a lot of spinning and elaborate turns, you know, and those people oh, who were really good dancers could do it in sort of almost like a war dance or a battle dance, something to that effect, <laughs> all right? And especially if you're indoors on a wooden floor, that stomping, boom, boom, boom. It's very mm. intimidating. It, it attracts people. It does a lot of different things. Right. And so that kind of dancing, along with the freestyle dancing that was going on, you'll hear people in Brooklyn maybe talk about it as rockers or whatever. A lot of that was going on. And what we call what year? Burning. What year is that? What year is this emerging? We're talking about the early, late 60s and early 70s. So we're talking okay. about 72, 73, in that gotcha. era. All right. Uh, and that's where you have the that, burners. Did that precede the park jams or were the park jams happening that early? Well, people were probably going to park jams during that time, but the park mm-hmm. jams weren't what they became to be as they pertain <laughs> to the yeah. birth of hip hop. Right. Okay. But there were right. DJs playing in the parks and various places outdoors. Okay. Okay. So in the seventies, but in the seventies, that's where you have the first incarnations of what would become the B boy, which is the burners. Okay. And okay. Explain burning, that. Explain that. Even because... some, uh, Explain that because b boy for the younger generation means break dancing and stuff like that. It was a right. entirely well, different terminology. Right. Could you touch right. on that for a second? Well, we called oh, it. People would call it like you would go off or you would break, mm-hmm. right? Yo, he broke. Right. He went off. And 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 in the early days of it, 
It was more upright. You know, wasn't a lot of no problems. sitting on your back and all of that. Nah, not yet, not yet, no. Right, right. And it was like if if you saw, you know, and, and the best way I can explain it to you, the upright, the early days of burning, would be like very similar to what you might have seen with James Brown's moves. So you have some splits, things right. like that. You know, okay. splits, okay. dropping back, pin drops, things like that, or Just things like lock the dancers on Soul Train, stuff like that. Right, right. All right? right. And those are the right. early incarnations of, of what would be known as breaking or burning and what have you. Okay. But as it started to evolve, you had these cats who started taking it down to the floor. All right? Sure. Now, the early burners and b-boy breakers were cats like Trixie and Sasa. You know, you had right. cats, even suspense, like Rubber Band and all these various right. people who were okay. doing breaking or burning. And they were more upright. They weren't spinning or anything like that. They were more upright. Like I said, a okay. spin here, a drop back there, a pin drop there. All right? right. But right around right. 74, 75, and you started seeing, and I remember when I first started seeing it, because I was burning and dancing upright and doing dropping back and all those things and that mm-hmm. normal stuff, too, in my beginnings mm-hmm. of it. But then I went to a club around 1974, 75, my first years of high school. I was in the ninth grade or so. And I was already a spade by this time. I joined the Black Spade as a baby member of the Black Spades in 1973, 13 years old, my first year of my second year of junior high school, okay, okay. second year of junior high school, what today would be considered the last year of middle school, all yeah. right? So my second year of junior high school. And I'd already had affiliations because I had friends who had joined early. The older members, I knew a lot of them. They knew me. They liked me and everything like that. And so it was a logical progression for me. I, I, you know, I was into school. I did well in school. I was a very gifted kid. I was an academically gifted kid. But I was also a kid who was very restless. I was a kid who probably was real angry about a lot of different things in my house, the, the relationship with my father, which was not necessarily a good one. He was very strict and, you know, a number okay. of different things. I had good parents. Right. So it wasn't a thing of being neglected or any of those. It was just right. me and how I processed my anger, my, my feelings. I grew up in the era of light skin and afros, and if you've seen pictures of me, I'm dark-skinned and with, <laughs> at the time, nappy hair and, you know, right. and everything, and, yeah. you know, being made fun of because I'm smart. I like different things. I like to read. I like, you know, and I could take care I of myself. You. you know, okay. I went from being bullied to a person who could fight. So okay. that combination, plus I could play basketball. I was a good athlete. <laughs> a combination of all of that. Uh, um gravitated me towards a different group of people than the people who were in my classes. You know, yeah. I had a lot of white yeah. friends who were very close to me. I had yeah. some black friends. I mean, the friends that I had in the projects, but I had a lot of black kids who didn't understand me. I didn't want to, I didn't want to understand them, but I still had some <laughs> very close friends of mine. All right. But because of my behaviors and all those kind of things, I was a smart kid getting put on detention and I'm this kid that joined a gang and, I'm in SP, which is a special project, which is the school, a class of gifted, gifted students. I remember they call SP, IGC yeah. classes. Right, right, right. You're from the New York, right. So the SP, yeah, I'm, I'm SP. from New York, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm an right. SP student, and I'm running with gangs. And I remember the principal, Joseph Bell, may he rest in peace, telling my mother, mm. your son's running with the black spade. And my mother's asking mm. me about it. I'm saying, I don't know what he's talking about. But I very much am running with the right. black spade. I remember <laughs> when I came and told them, my father wanted to kill me. And uh, tried to uh, beat me uh, to death. And I said, wow. well, and I didn't, that didn't make me stop. That just made me know I'm hiding my shit. <laughs> all right? But all right. I say all that to say that that's how I got introduced to things because with my friends who were baby spades who had less parental 
um, not guidance, but they, you know, they were able to hang out a lot more, and I was sneaking out to hang out. We're going to wow. these clubs. And so one of the first clubs I went to at, was the Hevelo, which was a club on Jerome Avenue and Burnside Avenue. And that is where the legendary Cool Herc played. Man. Okay? I am Cool Herc, and I don't care what people say, Cool Herc is the father of this culture we call hip-hop. Okay. People want to get and mad, well, he's a pioneer, he's a contributor. No, no, because I was around, and I went to different clubs. And I saw freestyle, and I knew what DJs played. And Herc was doing and playing something different, and he was playing something that catered to us as B-boys. And if you were a B-boy and that's what you gravitated towards, and that's what I gravitated towards when I first saw the twins, Kevin and Kenny Smith, Kevin and Keith Smith and Tyrone Smith, better known as Clark Kent. That's the original DJ Clark Kent, who became Herc's DJ protege, along with the Imperial JC a little later on. But those were the original A1 B-Boys. And when Mm. I say the original, I'm talking about B-Boys, as you know, it's spinning on the floor and all that. And I saw that. And I was like, by by the time Herc emerged, then there was getting down on the floor. Oh, absolutely. That's where it really started, in the Cool Herc parties. I got you. And the Cool Herc. I'm going to ask you what made him different. Exactly. He played music that catered to us, Cool Herc to the B-boys and his partner, Rock, all right? Okay. And they were MCing, Coke Rock is rapping on the mic. You know what I'm saying? Mm. was MCing, yeah. not the way you know MCing today with rhyming and rapping, but, you know, right. Coke Rock with the echo chamber, and they're playing songs like Apache, Cool Herc mm. songs, B-boy, original B-boy records, all right? Mm. Uh, obscure okay. records. That very few of them were mainstream records. And you right. understand what I'm saying, particularly being from New York, you know, there are records that are played on the radio, top 40 records that are played yeah, on the radio. Right, right. You know, back in those days, right. WLIB, WWRL, Super 16, right. with Jerry, Bre- Jerry Bledsoe, Frankie Crocker, you know what I mean? This is before right. Disco 92 and all of that. I'm right, talking about WLIB, WBLS. There were certain mm-hmm. songs that were played, and there were other songs that really didn't see that kind of right. airplay, or they'd see a little bit right. of it. Right. Most of the original B-Boy songs are songs that were fairly obscure. They mm-hmm. weren't popular top 40 songs. One or no, two, they were local maybe Scorpio. Right. Something right. like Dennis Crossy Scorpio, one of the early breaks records. Right? Mm-hmm. Something like Africano, Earth, Wind, and Fire, the original version of Africano, or That's the Way of the okay. World Now. Right. Original break record. Something like mm-hmm. Soul Makosa. Um, you know, Mano de Bango, Soul Makosa. Those yeah. are original break and burning records and a couple of others. But Herc okay. was playing a whole other playlist. Herc was playing <laughs> Apache from the Incredible wow. Bongo Band. Apache right. was such an obscure record that we as B-Boys, particularly Uptown, remember Uptown is a very different vibe from the South Bronx. The North hmm. Bronx vibe is very different. You know, you got right. residential communities, houses, a couple of projects scattered here and there. That's I come from the project. Yeah. I'm from Gun Hill Project. You know, we had right. Edenwall projects. Our ride was up there. And then you had projects like Gun Hill that were more like working family class projects. So it wasn't a lot of, you know, wasn't a lot of welfare families that here interspersed, but most of the families were working. So hmm. it was a different mindset. You know what I mean? Right. And it wasn't a lot of neglect or anything like that, you know? We had private now, houses the, uptown. Now, the other thing, when you say obscure records, the thing was, because you and I remember those things they used to call record stores. 
<laughs> when you're yes, going to buy it. Absolutely. You couldn't find you couldn't find records like Apache. That was the thing, even though your DJ was playing it, what made it probably uh more uh uh wanting to go to her thing is because when people probably heard and play the records, they go to the record shop, they couldn't find it. The only That's place you the could hear thing. It. Not only could you not find it, but this mm-hmm. is what I gotta tell people because you get all these people today who want to claim, they want to take a piece of claim of they started hip-hop, we were this, that, and the other, Brooklyn, all these other places. Not only could you not find most of those records, they didn't mm-hmm. want to play them if they did because they were wow. not, they specifically were not catering to us. They did not like what we were doing. They did not like B-Boys, and they didn't want us at their parties. They called wow. us door sweepers, yo-yos, boyoings, jitterbugs, and... The term that later became our, our, our moniker, hippity hoppers. Hip hoppers. It was a derogatory yes. term term in the beginning before hip hop yes, came to be embraced by yes, other terms. It was. it was a derogatory. Wow. Okay. Absolutely. And before okay. this is before uh, my man Cowboy embraced it and started using it in rhyme. All right. right. Okay. Because you know, that's the story. So all that's the other theories the out there. All the other theories about it, of who did this and who did that, it doesn't really matter because the term was in use, but in a, of a derogatory way. Exactly, exactly. I it was a derogatory term very to describe the B-Boys and the fact that we were jumping up and down in, in, in their eyes. We were it's doing an art form. Makes sense. Makes we sense. were doing an art makes form, sense. yes. But they called us jumping okay. up and down, all right? And we so, called so it... So at what point... We were, you know, at what point... Right. Go ahead. At what point, Charlie, did you join that diaspora of the B-Boy? What, what, oh, what, by what that time, 1974, I was already burning. Mm-hmm. And then when I saw um, Clark and them cats, I was hooked. I was like, yo, this is what I love doing. <laughs> and especially being, you know, in that day, I mean, I could actually dance. I could hustle. Wow. I could dance any kind of dance. But in the beginning wow. of it, I didn't do a lot of hustling. And girls like cute boys, and I wasn't a cute boy. I wasn't any right. of those things. I had a lot of women who liked me later on, but I wasn't a right. cute boy. And they liked the cute guys and all that. But the afro, and, you know the girls, and, they, and they were doing the little hustle. I had friends who were doing the hustle, and a lot of them later, kind of, they, they were kind of gay dudes. You know, but that's another story altogether. <laughs> but, you know, and I could do the hustle. But my thing, I found that this other dance... I could do, and it was a good wow. release for my energy. I had a lot of energy, and I had a lot wow. of anger, and it was a good right. way to release that energy, and I was okay. good at it. I was good wow. at it, you know, hmm. and I got a level of acceptance with it. And okay. so, you know, and then, then remember, by this time, I'm leaving junior high school. I'm, like I told you, I'm running with the spades, and hmm. I left junior high. I graduated from Oldenville Junior High School, junior high school 113 in the Bronx, and I attended one of the most prestigious high schools in New York City, which is the prestigious Bronx High School of Science. Yes, That's sir. why I went to high school. Yes, okay, sir. and of course, you being yes. you from New York. You, you have know, to take a special test to, school, to get into that school. You got to take a special test to get into Bronx Science. Absolutely. <laughs> and have high, high scores from your own junior high school. I mean, you got to... I have great respect for you, my brother, to get into Bronx Science. Get into Bronx Science or High School of Performing Arts, Music and Arts. Yeah, exactly. So Remember the specialized high school. Stuyvesant yeah. High School, Brooklyn Tech, you know. You had to have so you, talent, yeah. yeah. yeah Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So I wound up going to the Bronx High School of Science. 
Okay. All right. And, um, you know, I'm there, and I'm doing my little thing, and I'm running around with the gangs. And, you know, I was doing okay in school. And as I told you, my father and I had a very volatile relationship, and he did something one day in school that really got me angry and embarrassed me. And, um, you know, from there on, I kind of really didn't want to go to school. I went, but when I was going, I would be cutting up and hanging out. I'd go in for tests. I'd go for the test. I'd pass the test. I'd go in. I'd not be in school for two and three weeks. I'd walk in on a test take at 85, 90, and then leave again. And I do that. The teachers, yeah, <laughs> and teachers were like, I can't pass you if you don't come. I can't. I, I, and I was that. you got so I, much potential. Yeah, 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 and, and, you know, but I was so angry and I was so invested in what I wanted to do and the rebellion that I was just mm-hmm. like, I'm doing what I'm doing. And so, you know, I started but I was still b-boying. And so okay. my friends in Bronx Science liked me because, you know, Bronx Science is considered a nerdy kind of school. And, yeah. you know, like to give your, re- your, your, your listeners a good perspective on Bronx Science who don't know, my classmates in Bronx High School of Science were Neil deGrasse Tyson, Mm. Wow. Okay, the astrophysicist. Yes. Neil deGrasse Tyson. The most popular astrophysicist in the world, actually. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. That was one of my classes in Bronx High School of Science. His wow. roommate, when they went to Harvard, was one of my childhood friends that I went to science with, Ross Addison. All right? My boy, Frank mm. Vincent, that I used to play ball with in Bronx Science, is Dr. Gregory Vincent, who won the Supreme Court battle recently against affirmative action. Wow. When the Supreme Court wow. was trying to, you know, the, the um, uh, Austin, Texas, University of Austin, Texas. I remember they were trying to, yeah, they challenged yeah. the provisions. Of, uh, yeah. Right, this happened that. recently. Well, he right. is the lawyer who won that Supreme Court case. That's my Man. boy from Bronstein. Okay? okay? So these okay. are the people that I went to school with and having fun with. Okay. And they loved me because, one, I played ball. Two, I'm smart. Three, I could fight, and I was with a gang, and I was popular. <laughs> so it's like, that's our boy. That's our friend. We know Charlie Brown. And you know what I mean? Right. They can go, they can right. go places, and they, people won't bother them. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And, and being wow. a member of a gang had its own purpose, especially the biggest gang, because I go play. People ain't going to mess with me because right. I got a crew. You, you know go. what I'm saying? And I can fight. And I can dance. Right. So, <laughs> thing. so our B-boy thing was a thing of rebellion. We were renegades. And okay. it wasn't even about, well, you know, people want to talk about white people. White people weren't even in the mix because they had no idea what we were doing. They weren't around us. <laughs> they weren't even around us. The people who were rejecting right. us were black people. The other black people, right. Okay. Were yeah, black they, this was a new, something new emerging that they, they couldn't understand, didn't want it part they of their... They couldn't understand it. Right. They wanted to reject right. it. And this is the thing about right. black people. We are an extremely divisive culture among us, our own, where okay. they feel if we're not doing something that is socially acceptable to the status quo or to where they're aspiring to be, then now, they want to down it. Now, one of the people that from back in those days, and we're not saying this in a derogatory manner, but uh, there's someone now who has started the universe, one of the people who started the Universal Hip Hop Museum, and a lot of people from back in your time are surprised that he would be a person who would start a museum like I that. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, go ahead. His name is Rocky Bacan. We we just talking history. There's nothing bad about you know, but he was at, at one time in this type of set. Yes, that, that I have nothing against him. I know for a fact he was not. Mm-hmm. He was one of those people who did not embrace 
b-boy music because it wasn't being called hip-hop yet. Right. But right. the culture was already the it's, – it's like that, and I've explained it in the analogy on the comparison of having a baby that you couldn't decide what to name yet. Huh. And even though it okay. didn't have a name, it's still growing. Right. You know what I mean? Right. But in its early stages, and even as it was being called here, Rocky and them were adamantly against it. Rocky had a crew, well, had a crew of DJs. And they remember, they're from my area, the Northeast Bronx. Mm-hmm. And they played in a club called the Starters Ballroom. And mm-hmm. a close friend of mine who, uh, was, I won't mention his name, because mm-hmm. he was, uh, him mm-hmm. and his family were affiliated with, um, you know, organized crime. Just put it like okay. that. And okay. they were heavily connected into the Stardust, and they were good friends of mine, because I was into a lot of things. And they liked and they respected me. And so I was very tight with the people in the Stardust that owned it and ran it. And I saw a lot of things okay. in there. And so I used to go to the Stardust. So I'm a cat that was a B-boy in one era, dancing with my sneaker and all that. And I'll throw on a suit and shoes and go and do the hustle in the Stardust Ballroom. And the reason that's important is I saw both sides of the culture. Right. So okay. I think authoritatively about the fact that there was a group that did not they were adamantly against what we were doing, and Rocky okay. was part of that group. Now, they did not to, be that fair, crowd. to be fair and spread it around a little bit, what about DJ Hollywood's crowd? He wasn't in it, no, them either. And I have nothing you against Hollywood. Saying? I love his music. So, Hollywood was a great DJ. Right, he was right. not catering to that crowd. Him, June okay. none of them were. None of them right. were. So, Jumbo's so it wasn't just little Rocky Bacano. It's just that Rocky stands out because later he wants to start the universal right, hip-hop right. in. That's, that's, that's the only reason we mentioned okay. him. But it wasn't just right. him. Rocky, right. Hollywood was not about it. Eddie Cheever right. wasn't about it. P.D.J. Jones, the legendary P.D.J. Jones, nor his wife right. Becky. I keep telling you, people think about the first female DJ. Well, Becky D.J. Jones is one of the early female DJs, but she was not a hip-hop DJ. Well, because she, she played play disco music. Yes. Right. They okay. played black club music, and they did not right. play B-Boy records. And see, okay. and that B-Boy records and the B-Boys, us, and the DJs who played them, which were a select few, mm-hmm. okay, we okay. are the foundation of what came to be known as hip-hop. And that wasn't really taking place in Manhattan, definitely wasn't taking place in Brooklyn. Okay. That was just not the scene. Okay. Now, Charlie, we got two minutes. Man, I, will, I could talk yeah. to you all day long, my brother, because uh, you saw this fact. a lot of history, brother, a lot of history. Yes, you do, and you're very concise. But we got two minutes. We want you to bring us up to speed on what Charlie Rock is doing now. You had mentioned some of the, the things that you're doing now. You got two minutes oh, to fill absolutely. us in. Oh, absolutely. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. One of the things mm-hmm. I like to tell people that, yes, I'm considered a pioneer and all these kind of wonderful things, and I smile. Because I understand it, but the reality is I was just doing what I enjoyed doing as a part of my youth, like many, like a number of us. I mean, Tony mm-hmm. Fujilaland, you know, I always have to shout him out. My brother, yes. the legendary Clark Kent, the twins, Kevin and Keith Smith, you know, numerous other people, Grandmaster Flash, Africa Ben mm-hmm. the original Zulu Kings, my family. As you know, I'm one of the original 11 Zulu Kings, you know that, and all that kind of stuff, and we'll talk yes, about sir. that another time. But as I like to tell people, that was a part of my childhood, my youth, and we grow. I went away to college, straightened my life out, 
went through all the various street things, got my degrees. I hold a master's degree, summa cum laude, from Lincoln University. And I currently am the supervising educator of a program with an agency called Bronx Works, which is one of the largest community-based organizations for youth as well as um, adults and homeless services and homeless diversion in the Bronx. Okay, wow. and um, I am a supervising health educator for a program called the CAP program, which is Comprehensive Adolescent Pregnancy Prevention. So um, I train and I supervise health educators who facilitate evidence-based interventions. And so for those people who are not familiar with that from an academic perspective, evidence-based mm-hmm. interventions are evidence-based based are interventions that are proven through research and academic scholarly publication to work to change behavior, okay? okay. They are evidence-based, all right? Wow. And so uh, I run and supervise um, educators as well as facilitate evidence-based interventions and the curriculums. I've been in the field of public health education for the last 20-some-odd years, you know, uh, over 25 years, I would say. And um, that's what I'm doing. So that's, that's, that's what we do. And, um, you know, like I said, there's, you know, I, but I'm never ashamed and I love, I love the role that I played in the formation of what is today a worldwide culture. But I always tell yeah. people, you know, it, is, it was a part of my life, an important part of my life, a happy part of my life, an influential part of my life, but it is not the defining moment of my life. Gotcha. And that's the thing I like to, you know. But I always enjoy talking about it, and I love, I love my friends and my brothers. You hear me give them shout-outs. You know, because I love my friends and my brothers who were involved with us in the early days when we were just having fun. Nobody yeah, okay. was looking for a record deal. Nobody right. wanted to be a rap. We were the stars in our, in, right. our, in our communities. We were the right. stars. We were the celebrities right. of our community. And right. we were just a group of young boys and girls and girls who mm-hmm. were having a good time. Shout out like, to my girl, Shout Rock. Shout out Early B Girl, one of the first female MCs, probably the first female MC. When I say first female, who was totally devoted to MC, you know, wow. my girl Amber Carter, Bambada's one of Bambada's first MCs. She was female, okay. all right. First female okay. DJs, Baby D, and and, Baby and, and my girl Gail Hall. Respect. Gail Hall grew up okay. in your projects with me. You know what I Gail mean? Gail Hall. Yes, Gail Hall. Gail respect. Hall. Okay, yes. okay. We're one of the first female okay. from Mercedes Ladies. The first female hip hop group. Right. I interviewed them. I'm going to have them back too, Charlie. I'm going to have them back too, man. Absolutely, Thank absolutely. Ask Gail Hall. We grew up together. She's 740 East Gun Hill Road, and I was in 3444 White Plains Road, apartment 80. Yeah. No yeah. care. We were about seven, eight years old. Yes. Your memory is astounding, my brother. Mr. Anthony well, G. Horn. Charlie Rock, we know him and love him in hip-hop as. Uh, your knowledge is very concise and to the point, and we want to thank you for your contributions Listen. to hip-hop, all right? And we want to thank you pleasure. for taking your time to do this show, Charlie. And uh, we want to wish you the best of health and the best in whatever else you're doing. You're giving back in the, what you're doing now. And in public yes, health and giving back to people. And so I think you're going to be around for a while. God has a plan and a purpose for you, my brother, and you seem to be uh, serving very well. Charlie well, Rock, God willing, don't rise. Listen, my, uh, the legendary disco daddy, y'all, y'all don't know, you better read about it, you better find out, all right? That's, 
the Thank man you. who introduced Thank you, you to the West Coast. And health, wealth, Thank and prosperity you. to you on this new adventure, on this new endeavor, brother. It. Feel free to call I me anytime, it. man. Be happy. Thank you, Charlie Rock. You're welcome. You've been listening to... Thank you. You've been listening to Disco Daddy's Wide World of Hip Hop. Our special guest, Mr. Anthony G. Horn, better known as Charlie Rock. Don't go away. We've got more exciting guests coming at you this month and uh, some special announcements. Thank you for tuning in. Peace. Peace. Lives Lives has something very special for you right after church. Gospel brunch and sunshine. I am Robin Lynn, and join me for Jazz with Jay every Sunday and a glass of wine <laughs> on VibesLive.com. 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hello out there, Disco Daddy here. Welcome to Disco Daddy's wide world of hip-hop. As you've been following us, you know that we are having historic interviews with some of the legends and pioneers of this culture that we love. And we're going all over the world to find these people, not just here in America, but there's uh, hip-hop in Uganda, there's hip-hop in Vietnam. This hip-hop in London, Paris, and Rome. Disco Daddy's wide world of hip-hop will be touching bases all over the world. Today, we have a man that some of you know and some of you don't, Mr. Derek L. Simmons, better known to us in hip-hop as G-Rock. Are you out there, my brother? Yes, I'm here in flesh. All right. Uh, What we're going to do today is talk about yourself, your history, uh, we're going to go back to your childhood. And uh, what brought you into this culture that we know as hip-hop? And you can start at the very beginning where you're born and raised and the influences around you, what was going on, the flavor. And then we'll get into your practice, my brother. Mr. Derek L. Simmons, you rock. Yep. Well, it all started back in, uh, you know, I was a young kid. Like I said, I was... My childhood was in uh, Plainfield, New Jersey. That was the home of the P-Funk. So, I, you know, I grew up listening to George Clinton, and um, so I was always around music and stuff. And, um, you know, coming up in, uh, in the 70s, as you got up into the 70s, you know, I got older and stuff like that, and, uh, you know, my love for music grew, man. And 77, the end of 77, um, I actually went, I was actually on the West Coast. I actually went out to the West Coast. You know, I had a cousin out there that uh, his mom wanted me to go to school with him, you know, for for, for the 10th grade. And I was out there in 78, actually. That's why some of my early dancing roots, that was the first things that I learned. I learned how to pop lock and, you know, break dance and all that stuff. At the time I went back to wow. To Jersey, yeah. It was, it was funny because I was in the beginnings of the West and the East. <laughs> so, well, uh, right. Hybrid. <laughs> Hip-hop hybrid. Yeah, yeah. So, so, <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then when I moved back to, you know, to Jersey, my mother had moved to Newark. So I didn't go back to Plainfield. I went back to Newark, New Jersey, and that's when the hip-hop kicked in, you know. 
So, you know, from that point on, I was I was already into the music. And so when it came up, I just started writing right away. You know, and the rest is, hmm. is the history. <clears throat> yep. What year What year was this that you decided to, to start exploring? That, that was, that, I started, I wrote my first rhyme in, um, my first rhyme actually in 79, mm, which where right. I wrote my first rhyme. It was... And you got you know you know back in them days, you know as well is that there wasn't no sixteen bars, and eight bar hooks and all that. We just wrote and right. wrote and wrote and wrote. So I wrote right. my first rhyme was ten pages long, and uh, it was yeah. It was, <laughs> I mean, now, and I was proud. You memorized all that. You memorized it, my brother. Oh yeah, I, yeah. At that time, yeah, it was it was the excitement, you know, the adrenaline. And, okay. And I um I remembered it. I remember it well because um it was that uh what's that song uh Christmas rap that just came okay. out. Yeah, it was around the holidays. Yeah, around the holidays. Mm-hmm. And um, Curtis Blow had the record. You know, on the first side it said Christmas rap. On the second right. side it says Do Your Own Rap. Right. So remember, I remember that's that. That's what got me. You remember that? He says, rap yes, sir. things. Yes, sir. I got so one of those in a record pool. Right. That kind of enticed mm-hmm. you. They're like, all right. Well, I played, played that instrumental for hours, man. When I got done, I had a 10-page rhyme. And from there, I just, you know, I just kept on going with the 10-page rhyme. It was like the right. earliest form of freestyling like they do now because we was able to write until we blew in the face. But, right. uh, you know, when regulations came through, you know, I started – writing the 16s and all that stuff. And I was, you know, I really got serious about 81, 82, you know, hmm. you know, deciding I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to wreck it out, you know. I wanted to right. go for it and everything. And at this time, I was by myself. So, you know, I acquired all of the skills, you know, which, which I still have knowledge of, you know, like the production, the writing making the beats, all that, you know, manufacturing, everything I had to do. Were you performing? Were you appearing as D-Rock at the, during this time yeah. also uh, honing your rapping skills? And did you use the name D-Rock? I mean, when you early first yeah. started, what were you, D-Rock did you was, come out? Uh, well, the first, the first name I had was uh, Gangster G. That was the first okay. name I had, you know, off the cuff. I just called myself Gangster G for some reason. Okay. But, um, I got you. you know, and then people in the street, once they got to know me, they they rarely called me Gangster G. They, they all they, they all cut it short and called me G. So mm-hmm. that eventually became, you know, my my you know, my attribute became G. And and, okay. and a young dude around my way, he used to he's a real cool guy. I mean, he's real young too. He used to always mm-hmm. call me G something. Like, hey, what's going on, G Boogie? What's up, G Rock? And he said G Rock. <laughs> I said, hmm, and I, and I kept that. Uh, <laughs> like, he gave it to me, but I kept that. <laughs> that's that, yeah. Yeah, okay. and I had um, it ever since, man. Ever since, like, 82, man, I had that name. So, wow. Okay. you know, yeah, it's embedded in in my whole, you know, lifestyle. So your, your first venture into recording happened, professionally happened how? In 1985, I, uh, you know, I had got out of high school and everything. In high school, I was doing talent shows and everything. But when I got out, like I told you, I wanted to go for the gusto. And it happened mm-hmm. in, like, the end of 84. I met a guy 
you know, I was somewhere performing at a talent show, and he he got with me, and he said, yo, you were so good. He was, you know, like, somewhat like a fan or something. But mm-hmm. he was saying he wanted to get into, you know, managing an artist and all this and stuff, and then we hooked mm-hmm. up and everything, and he started managing me. You know, he wasn't a manager before, but he started managing me, you know, and at the time mm-hmm. I had a DJ with me. So um, right. he managed us and stuff like that, and I was with him a couple of years until – I eventually went on my own because he was. I felt he wasn't getting me where I wanted to go. So, right, right. I kind of branched off. You know, I, I kind of learned the business through him and kind of branched of off. Course. My own. Yeah, about that. Was, that happened about like in the late eighties, like eighty eighty nine. You know, I started doing things on my own. You know. Mm-hmm. You have a massive amount of work. Yes. Uh, Okay, explain to us that period when you created the amount of uh, of work that you have. You could probably release material for years if you wanted to. Explain to us how how that came about. All right. Well, off the cuff of what I just explained about the manager, you know, when we had a we had a well, we had before I left, we had a falling out. And um, because I was the producer for his independent label, and I, always, okay. I did all the music anyway for like artists that mm-hmm. came in and, and stuff like that. So, you know, when I when I left him, I just kept on going. Well, I was angry too at the point time point, and I just started making all kinds of. Songs. What year? What year was it that you that left was, and went off? That was in 1989. That was 1989 okay. when we last when we last worked together. I was actually okay. on the tour. It was, it was actually Public Enemy's second tour. I was on that tour. Wow. And they, yeah, they came to Jersey and they and they did the whole tri-state and I was I was involved in that tour. Actually, let me give you this thing that, you know, the manager did for me. This is the one good thing that he did that I can <laughs> honestly is no, <laughs> we got we got signed to he signed us. We were the only unsigned group that was signed to famous artists booking agency when they first started. Okay. You know what I'm saying? We were okay. the first underground artists that were signed to them when they first started. Everybody else was major. Wow. And that's how we got on the PE tour in 89. Wow. We did that after the tour, then I was out. I was on my own. In 19, wow. Like 1990, let's say 1990, from that point to present day, you know, I was doing my own stuff. And right. like I said, I, was, I, was, I did the production, the written and everything, so I was just started knocking them out. You know, I was I was trying, I was going, right. man. I just started knocking out the songs, and after the songs became albums, and I was doing albums like on GP on the weekends and stuff like that. You know, <laughs> adding up. You know, James Brown of hip every three months together. Yeah, yeah, I was on a mission, man. You know, but it added up. You know, so okay, right. That's how I got into doing all the songs. And then um, eventually I brought under some artists under my wing and I started producing them and stuff because I had so much stuff, I couldn't use right. all of it myself. So I started right. writing at artists for a while too. So, wow. Yeah. So okay. I agree so all the areas of that. Okay. Your tour with PE, that must have mm-hmm. been uh, – 
for you monumental in a, quite a few different ways. Uh, you, you're, you're on tour with a major artist who at that time, which still is, they, they were kicking butt everywhere, every stage they appeared yeah. at because they were, yeah, they were radical or considered perceived to be radical. What was that like? Well, it was, you know, when we did the tour, excuse me, like I said, we were unsigned artists. And, well, me, I was, I was the only rapper and I had a DJ, but we were opening okay. for the show. We were, we were actually the first group that opened up as well. Okay. So for me to be, you know, to go on, to be the first person on stage in a major tour, that was that was unheard of, man. That was, I was in my I was, yeah, I was okay. blessed, man. I, I was happy. I was real happy with that. I really okay. enjoyed that tour. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it must have been a learning experience. What, basically, what did you learn as a performer that you hadn't known before you got on tour? Well, I learned how to communicate with the audience. I mean, you know, and I, I had problems with that, you know, say, you know, within myself. You know, I never was a, a really a stage guy that went okay. out and performed and, and, and entertained in front of the crowd. I could do it, you know, it, right. you know, if I had to, but I, I was mostly like a, a lab rat. So a I would do the shows. I would do the shows. Right. I had to do it with just me and the DJ, but... Right. Most I enjoyed enjoyed most being making the music, you know, being in the, in the studio, man. I, I enjoyed that more. So is that still the same? It was a learning thing. Just learning to deal with it. That was that was the learning curve. Just learn, you know, if you're going for the record, you, you got to perform. You're the only person. Right. I could do it. I was. I, it was no problem doing it. But that, you know, it, okay. that was my <laughs> my favorite. Though. Are you still more comfortable as a producer and a, a music creator yes. than a performer to this day? Yes, that's and that's the answer to your question. I mean, of doing all this music over the years is that you know that's my first love right there. You know, I love making the music. Mm -hmm. I love being creative. I love being creative and innovative. Okay. So you know, one one year. Um, I can tell you too. I think I uh, when in the early time when I uh, ran across you and met you, I um, said that I had you know got a world record. I had a world record for putting out the most albums in one year. Right, right, right. I remember out, that. I actually ago. put out twenty albums in one year. Oh man! And I did those albums that year. It wasn't like wow. stuff I had and collected. No, I did those twenty albums. <laughs> In that right. one year, I think it was like 2007. It might have been 2007. Wow! In that wow. same year, this, I was in it, yeah. I was in Business Magazine, Business Week Magazine. Mm. Mm. I started. I, now check this. I started. I went. That's when I was first getting online and, and navigating the online and stuff. Oh, I was on there early, and I, right. I wanted to make my own YouTube page. You know, after I seen YouTube, I wanted to make my own, and I started it on some platform, and they saw it. Whoever it was, they were struggling. Uh -huh. They saw me do it, and in one week, I had like twenty thousand people homing in on my page. <laughs> so they they immediately called me. They, the cameras came out, and everything in the magazine came in. So that was another you know wow. play that I'm right. too. They're doing very. Wow. They're really big now. They're doing very well now. You yeah, know the name right in the called, beginning. called Ning.com. If you, if you 
you know that name is Ning.com. Well, actually, okay. you know, they they tell me that you know they still probably you know really helping them out off the ground. So that's another thing I'm proud of as far as that angle. But you know, like I said, I I, I really do love you know playing the back and being creative and you know I like I like to work. You know. Okay. Now you're based in uh, Philly, or are you in Jersey now? Where are you based now? Yeah, I'm in Jersey. I'm, I'm okay. based in Jersey. I've been here the whole time. You know, I'm in uh, Orange, New Jersey now. But when I started, my hip-hop roots started in Newark. Like I said, it, it went for 20, 20 years in Newark. So. Well, we, 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 we know, like, Queen Latifah, a couple of yes. people. Were there any yes. other people that were coming from Jersey, representing at the time, that during your formative years that were or working around you, your contemporaries at the same time, any names that we – we might know that represented the Jersey. Uh, uh, yes, the pop I mean, I mean, a lot of those, a lot of those names like Queen Latifah, um, Naughty by Nature, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Lords of the Underground, and, okay. and, and, and uh, the Outsiders. You know, all of those guys, right. they know me because I was. I'm like one of the first. I'm like, like actually the first person to put it down. For North, North New Jersey, okay. I'm, I'm the OG. I'm the original OG. So I, okay, you know, a lot of them I, I work with before they went on to do their thing. You mm. know, and, and okay. the, yeah, I'm proud of a lot of them because I actually work right. with them on their way to getting where, okay. where they are. And, you know, a lot of them went, came, went on to be legends. So. Wow. wow. Yep. And I was in New York as well. Okay. Okay, I know if you have great respect, I can see it on Facebook from everybody. Yeah, and a, great yeah, a lot of the people. old school legends and stuff. I, I've worked with them over over the decades, years. I, you know, they all know me. I'm like one of the rare guys, you know, from the underground that that's known in mainstream and everywhere. It's because right, I've, right, I how long I've been out there. I, you know, and I've played the back. Right. Like I said, I like to make music, I produce, and I did a lot of beats for people and songs. And stuff like that, you know. So okay, that's what I love. That's what's the part that I really love. I got you. Now you have a uh, an award that you had created <laughs> that you've been yeah. giving to uh, deserving artists. Tell us about that concept. Where that came to being? What that's all about? The Hip Hop Culture Awards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how that came about? You know, it was a couple of years ago. I was uh, I was a nominee you know, to get an award, you know, at mm-hmm. the time. And you may know the name of the uh, organization. You might have seen it. It's called Team Fearless. Yeah, yeah. You know, right. they, they, were getting, they had an award thing, too. And that, the guy that was the CEO it was uh, uh, Tito, the devastating Tito from the Fearless Fearless Four. Tito, right. Right. Yeah, so, you know, he, he nominated me. The, the year I met him, you know, he got with me and we talked and everything. And, he met me and learned my history and saw a lot of stuff, all the stuff that I'd done, and he nominated me. You know, so and what happened it was that one show they had been doing it for like four years, and that was the fifth year coming in. That one show, you know, due to situations beyond his control, it didn't kick off. Okay. You know, the, the nominees were nominated. Everything was set up, and you know, whatever happened with that happened, but. You know, and I felt kind of bad for him, and I, you know, for myself, it felt like a miss for me. I remember that. Yeah, I remember you know that. What I'm saying? I, instead of me 
being angry, you know what? I said mm-hmm. uh, my whole model became, look, we, we're, we are not going to be denied. You know, we're not going to be out. And then that thing, no matter how hard you try, you can't stop us, became our permanent model. Right. So right. I said, you know what, it's not, all, not about me. It's not just about me. You know, I was, you know, very excited and flattered to, to be nominated and that, you know. But I said, you know what, there's a lot of other people that deserves it as well. And I just started hitting somebody. I think I hit one person up that I was thinking at about the time that was nominated mm-hmm. that year with me. And then it just right. took, it just went on into it. Yeah, and I, then as I started doing it, everybody, you know, because wow. it was easy. The way I did it, it was easy for me to do it. It right. was a virtual award. Right. I had created the symbol, and it was very easy to, to nominate beautiful. And, and induct everybody. So I just went on. It was on beautiful on. also. It was beautiful. I got one, and I was very appreciative that anybody would even think of me in that respect. And uh, everybody that you've given it to has shown appreciation to you, brother, yes. for even thinking yes. outside yes. of yourself about the other's contribution to our culture. And that kept me motivated because every time I would read their comments, it was like a, a, a second speech. They, I mean, everybody yes. really, they, they, <laughs> oh, yeah, they, they took pride uh-huh. in that virtual award. So yeah. I kept going, man. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm past 500 now, so. Man. Okay. You know, yeah, that's and that started thing. for me, not me not getting in the war. So I said, look, I, I said, everybody's going to get one now, you know. <laughs> you know Out of a negative comes that positive. I created the HACCA, and, and uh, okay. I mean, I get like hundreds and hundreds of, of hits on there every day. You know? Wow. So it's very wow. informative. I have a, actually have a website for it as well. I don't know if you went to the website yet, but I do have a website. An actual hall, okay. like we call the hall. You know, I call it the, the Hall of Pioneers. So, okay, there, yes, there is a physical website. You know, where everybody's name there, and pictures, and you know, stuff. You know, written about them. So, I wanted right. to solidify that as a. I did that as a rebellion, <laughs> but it, but it, it worked in a positive way. So, right, worked in a positive way. Yes. Okay. Now you have. What are your current kind? Uh, uh, you have some um, uh, projects that you're working on now that I've seen you make some uh, oh, posts yeah. about. No, you want to no, tell no, us no, about no. that? Now, the one that I have now is uh, I'm working on with uh, an associate of mine. He's like a little brother to me. Everybody knows him as, you know, the Rhyme Inspector Percy P. And right. um, work, I came up with this project. actually came up with it because me and him were talking about it. You know, we talk a lot, a lot about the old school and stuff like that. We have con- so I'm sure you have conversations like that with, mm-hmm, yes. with, with people you know, friends. And that came up. You know, that the record store came up because we were talking about wax and, and the longevity of wax and vinyl. And right. I was like, you know what? You know, I, I got to give them their props because I, I used to go to this record store for like over 25 years. And mm-hmm. they're still there standing doing pretty good. So I said, yeah. I'm going to give them their props. I mean, you know, me, that's one thing I'm always thinking. I'm always thinking. And I said, okay. we're going to do a promo. We're going to do the promo. You write your thing. I write my thing. Then we're going to do a video for it and everything. It's going to be the the biggest honor to an institution that deserves it. And nobody yeah. done anything like that. So I said, you know, I just started doing it. I just started doing it. You know, I made the track. It took me two days to do the track. And then I sent it to him. He wrote his verse. I wrote my verse. 
we dropped it. You know, now we're at the point right now we're getting ready to do the, the video part, and it's really doing very good. I mean, this early, right. so fast. It's doing, there's right. a lot of buzz out there. I already got I'm in a magazine already. So, Man. you know, it, yeah, I didn't think it was going to take off like that, but I'm glad it did because, <laughs> okay. you know, they deserve it. They deserve the, the honor that we're giving them. So. Well, let me ask you this. Because you're one of the few artists I can talk to come from a period where there was vinyl and record stores. Yes. Um, what do you think of the change uh, from everything going from vinyl, mom and pop stores, and the availability of being able to walk down a block to a record store and buy an artist record to the internet where you have all these different platforms Spotify, Tidal, iTunes. Uh, yeah. How does an artist navigate through all of that? And would you prefer the old system where people actually could just go buy your record tape and CDs? Or do you think that this system that we have now, which is going to be here forever, is actually better for an artist? I actually think it's, it's better for an artist, you know, especially the artists now. You know, because these young artists, you know, they really, they don't know about, you know, the days back. You know, like me and you right. are fortunate enough to still be here. We we came from the yeah. analog um, right. era into the digital era, so we can appreciate it a little bit more because, you know, we have more knowledge of the transition and we can compare and everything. I can I can say to you, when I first got on the Internet, I was I was elated. Man. I was I was happy in in in, in you know, satisfied because I had a thing with the industry anyway. You know, I, I've been okay. independent since 1990. So it, right. was, it was definitely a good thing for me. But, gotcha. you know, talking to the youth, you know, I mean, going from, from there, answer your question from there to here, there's mm. some some good in both. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I really enjoyed buying the records, you know, and going out searching for the records, like you say, going – to the, the you know the store and picking yeah. up the records and all that yeah. stuff right there and finding the something guys, that she wasn't expecting guys, to find. Yes, yes. Yeah. They 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 missed that. You know that's something that they not going <laughs> to see. I mean they had a little right. resurgence of it. You know it's a little right. piece of it back here, but but it's not like right. it does. That's why you okay. know I had to give props to that store because I'm like yo they're still around selling vinyl. I mean this is something I used to do. I don't even DJ no more. I used to right. DJ for 25 years, and I used to wow. go there every week. Every week I used to go to Rock and Soul over in the okay. city. You know, they were over in Manhattan on 7th Avenue. Right. So, you know, it's a little, it's good in both, but I think the now is better, I mean, especially for people like me and you. Okay. Because, you know, you without the Internet, I don't think we would be trying. No, I, I, no, I, I, and that's I, another I, question I, I was going to ask. Do you think of well, another question I'm gonna ask you because it took five years for me to come back from obscurity, right? Where people simply now recognize what I've done, and it would not have happened without the internet, uh, exactly. Facebook specifically, uh, MySpace. When I got into that, it, that became more of a dating game type of website. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, because I it was new social media too. Yeah, kind of yeah. Out. yeah. <laughs> right. I left it. Because Facebook seemed to be sort of more tailored to me, at least during a time when what happened with me, my daughter saw some stuff, 
So, Dad, didn't you do so and so? And there's somebody else on here saying that they did this. You know what I'm saying? This was like 2007 or eight. You know, when the internet yeah, was new, it was yeah. just my thing. And so then I started uh, actually paying attention to the internet and realized that the only way I could, you know, uh, negate well, those, you those you the people who were, remedy, yeah, that you know, to start a page and stuff and do that. So it has helped me to where now I have uh, some, the respect to where I can have the respect of other OGs like yourself to come on and do, do the uh, show. But along with that, I realized that all oh, you G's got stories to tell that are never, unless they've written a book or something, will never be known. And right. we got brothers popping off in their 40s and 50s now. So do we? can we expect a book from yes. uh, Derek L. Simmons, uh, G-Rock, yes. Yes. in the future? Yes. yes. I'm writing it now. I'm writing okay. it now. Okay. You got a, a working title for it? Well, the name would be Urban Legendary. That's the name of the book. Yeah, and that's talking about, you know, me coming from, you know, the management all the way up until, you know, the independence and all the people I've worked with and the things I've been through in in, in the industry and stuff like that. So it's definitely going to be a nice, definitely going to be a nice, nice story to read. That's beautiful because we need all of our brothers' stories and sisters because collectively, if people read your story, they read another brother's story from the OGs, they get a collective picture of what it was actually like. You know what I'm saying? They get a a more – each one of y'all books would be a slice of the hip-hop pie, hip-hop history pie, in other words. You know what I'm saying? And over a period of time, academics and scholars who do study these things would be able to read – the story from the horse's mouth, so to speak, not not somebody's interpretation of what you said or a third-party account who happened to be there when you made this, you know what I'm saying, with your own total experience. What advice would you give now to young people entering business, specifically hip-hop and hip-hop recording? Do you think that the award shows like the BET Awards and some of the mainstream awards accurately reflect the state of hip hop and the amount of talent that's 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 out there. Personally, I would say no. Mm. But I, w- I would never tell someone, you know, to not, you know, work. You you can work towards something like that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and work, you know, and always put a hundred percent into to what you're doing because in this era now, with the digital era, you know, you could pretty much make your own. You can do it yourself, even if you don't get a record deal like that or anything. You can create right. your destiny. You can create it. You know, I mean, you know, I, I know that because I have done it. You know what I'm right. saying? I mean, like like me and yourself, I was on the internet for about ten years. You know, before I started early, right in the beginning, before MySpace and all that. And at this point now, you know, I'm at the place where I wanted to be, you know, putting in 25 years. You know what I'm saying? In mm. 10 years, I did it on the net. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what I could have, should have done in 25, you know, on, on foot. So it's definitely, you know, worth going for years and stuff like that. I don't like when when they don't put 100% into it, like like this the rap today. You know, you have some people that mm. don't really, you know, 
put the mind, body, and soul into the lyrical content and, right. and things of right. that nature. It's all about the marketing and promote. I think that part is really, it, you know, that's a that's unfortunate, but you know they, they they're using that more than than letting the artists, you know, use their more of their creativity and you know innovations. So right. that 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 part I can see the difference between when we came up. And like, like now, you look at the way it is now. You know, we definitely were more diverse, more creative. We oh, put yeah. more heart and soul into it. Yeah, that's why yeah. it lasts so long. Yes, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. I remember hearing Gigolo rap with a, 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 a Daddy and Captain Rap. You know what I'm saying? I had right. it. You know what I'm saying? Right. So you know, <laughs> even though you Thanks. say obscurity, I knew who you were. You know. Okay. And I came from okay. that era. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I know, exactly. I know who you are. <laughs> so, Thank you, my brother. Thank I you. had the records. I was nope. a DJ first. I had the records. Okay. So oh, there you go. Now, where can people go, um, G-Rock, to uh, purchase your music? Oh, they can go anywhere, man. iTunes, uh, mm-hmm. Amazon. And, and, you know, they, they, they can just and, uh, move with me, man. I mean, I got into the... All under the name G-Rock, I mean, though, right? I'm, yeah. Yeah, they can just. Oh, you recorded all the way through that name. Okay. Yep. G Rock and the C A D Coalition. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And you got a Facebook page, Twitter, and, and Instagram. Yeah. Tell us that's, I, I got them all. Man. I got. I got okay. them all. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, and those are under the name Derek L Simmons. However. Yeah, most of them. In other words, under, under my stage name, but you know, the, you know, the, like uh. Facebook is under Derek L. Simmons. Uh, my Twitter is under G. Rock. You know, okay. you know, stuff like that. yeah. So it's different, okay. but like I said, if they Googled my name or searched it, they would see all mm-hmm. of them right there lined up. So gotcha. you know, it's probably better gotcha. to Google me, and then they could see whatever they want. They want to see, man. I mean, I worked hard for that that Google. Mm, I got you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I'm at, I'm at, I'm at the level like the pros, the legends now. You can just Google me and everything's out. Yes, there. I just Google. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, you know, <laughs> we want to thank you, Derek L. Simmons, G. Rock, for your contribution to hip hop. No problem, man. We want to thank you for pleasure. your. So, okay, we want to thank you for your time doing this show, and we want to wish you the best for the rest of your career, my brother. And if there's any way Disco Daddy's Wide World of Hip Hop can support you in your music, I'm just a text away, my brother. Okay. And I thank you because you already have. All right. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much, man. You've been listening to Disco Daddy's Wide World of Hip Hop. We were talking with Derek L. Simmons, better known as G-Rock, one of the most prolific uh, hip-hop producers, unknown and known, because there are a lot of us who do know about But my audience out there, Google <laughs> Derek L. Simmons or G-Rock, and uh, you'll find and discover a whole world of music you didn't even know was out there. Thank you, G-Rock. Peace. Indeed, man. It's my pleasure. Like I said. All right. Yep. So wasn't it a great show? Come back next week, every Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Central Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Disco Daddy's Wide World of Hip Hop Show. 
man. It's a great one. Epic. Epic. See you next week. Bye.